Alright, so someone may have slightly messed up the intro, so we're going to deal with that. Welcome to this week. Hello and welcome to another episode of the OSINT Bunker podcast. Uh, I am John the Defence Geek, I'm joined this evening by OSINT Technical, my co-host, and we're joined this evening as well by uh, Austin, who is our guest um, Austin, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey there, John. Hey there, Technical. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. See, this is the part where we were supposed to have like the questions to ask Austin what he was about, what he was doing. So I'm just going to record this in ADR and ask him, So, Austin, what do you do? Oh, by all means. So I went to school, got a degree in international relations. I'm based out of the D.C. area. In my past, I've done work for the European Union, specifically on areas like the Libyan ceasefire treaty, uh, working for a um, group in the European Parliament there. Uh, in the past couple of years, I've been sort of ingratiated within the private intelligence sphere, mostly doing things like geopolitical forecasting, as well as sort of risk assessment and everything like that. So in the past couple of years, as you both can imagine, there's been quite a bit popping off in the world. So I've covered everything from the uh, evacuation of Afghanistan to the um, disruption or implosion, so to speak, of the Sri Lankan government to, you know, the war in Ukraine. So I'm a bit of a generalist and I'm uh, do a bit of work on just about everything, but that's sort of me in a nutshell. Yeah, and that's brilliant. And um, I'm I'm sure your uh, uh, interests in in the sort of polit 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 yeah, political side of things um, will come in handy, particularly tonight as as we discuss the U.S. midterm elections. Um, before we uh, carry on with the episode, um, I just want to have a, a quick uh, sort of message to our listeners. Um, as many of you will be aware, it has been a little while since uh, we last released an episode. Um, for those of you who have not seen the announcement I posted uh, on the podcast's official Twitter account um, earlier in the week, um, basically we've... Uh, sort of come across a little bit of an odd situation where at the moment, as you'll all be aware, we have three co-hosts, myself, OSINT Technical, and Kyle, uh, Jake Glenn. Um, we found ourselves in the unusual circumstance of uh, both OSINT Technical and Kyle um, entering new jobs, and although I won't go into the detail, the, the short and long of it is the, the nature of their new jobs meant that um, they had to sort of get the green light from their new employers um, in order to be able to continue with the podcast. Um, now, I don't know if OSINT Technicals had the green light or if he has decided that he is just going to uh, wing it and go ahead with it. Um, he messaged me earlier this week and said, um, I, think, I think it was words to the effect of, we're going to re record an episode this weekend if it kills me. Um, so here he is. Um, hopefully, um, Kyle will get the green light soon as well and we'll be able to rejoin uh, us on, on the podcast um, and we will be looking to add a new uh, host um, to the team uh, in the next couple of months, um, either in time for the end of Season 4 or uh, at the very least for the start of Season 5. Um, we'll be announcing the details of that in due course, so do keep an eye open uh, on the Ice and Bunker Twitter account and, and on our own uh, Twitter accounts as well, um, and we'll keep you updated in regards to that. But we do uh, really appreciate all of you who listen in, and, and for your patience in the last uh, month or so as we've tried to obviously work around the situation 
Um, understandably, it, it, the delay unfortunately couldn't be avoided. It was a case of a combination of me not wanting to be hosting an episode on my own and uh, also the fact that uh, all three of us have been incredibly busy with our respective uh, day jobs. So um, we're, we're very, we're very grateful for your, your patience with us and uh, hopefully this is the start of uh, normal service resuming. Yeah, and, and I hope the thing you quoted me on doesn't come true, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe I'll end up beeping it out to make it sound more mysterious. Um, yeah, no, I mean, yes, I've been pretty open about um, where I am now and what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I'm basically just doing OSINT in a professional capacity, which is always fun. Um, but yeah, I, I, I expect to see, you know, those weird issues pop up from time to time, because of course that always happens. Um, though, though granted, moving into the next few months, things are, things are always interesting, right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, hopefully... And if hopefully... Twitter would decide not to implode, that would, that would also be really nice. Um, so, uh, podcast listeners, I guess, um you're kind of going to have a, a second way of listening to us at all times. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's always an, an avenue to getting information from us. Indeed. Indeed. And, um, yeah, as you say, hopefully Twitter doesn't implode because, uh, I'm not entirely sure where all of the OSINT community will run when it does. Um, yeah, I, I put a thread together, but um, we're we're all kind of in a big mess. Um, if if Twitter doesn't decide to implode, I I think uh, a good amount of the OSINT data, um, the the sort of OSINT repository of information, which is incredibly valuable, um, for tracking stuff down, finding things, locating things, um, that would kind of go poof, and um. Let me tell you, that's that's kind of super important for us. Um, that allows us to do a lot of the work with it. We do a lot of the digging, a lot of the investigatory um, sort of aspect of, of what we do. Um, and, and losing that is, is definitely a, a, a big impact um, to our ability to do that. So definitely, um, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be good. Speaking oh, I'd, I'd, yeah, I mean, I would absolutely agree. I would say that, you know, Twitter over the past five years has become such a wealth of information, not just for sort of finding and verifying sources, but also just sort of, uh, you know, reading the tea leaves, so to speak, reading what people who are on the ground and, you know, whatever crisis is being looked at are saying. Um, and losing that would be a sort of a terminal issue, not just for sort of Twitter itself, but so many companies within sort of the OSINT sphere that sort mm. of um, their bread and butter is threshing through that information and writing algorithms on how to analyze that. Yeah, and I, I, I do think other platforms don't have the same um, kind of... It's a combination of the user base and, you know, ease of or powerful search tools um, that because things are so text-based, people usually sort of add the right text-based tags and that allows, you know, easy sort of finding of the information that you want to find, um, which is power for, powerful for algorithmic-based um, uh, 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 research. Um, 
but yeah, losing that will definitely be a big impact. Also, at any time you know you lose a platform that a community is is highly based upon, um, it, it it splinters that community and um, impacts its ability to actually do work. Um, I know when talking about the Chinese OSINT community, which it exists, um, and uh, it's it's mostly WeChat based, um, and and you know there there are restrictions on what they do and 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 kind of who they're aimed at, um, but they'll they'll probably continue to exist, and that's always something to to consider. Indeed, and and speaking of things going poof, I, I think that quite uh, handily brings us on to um, a topic that we we probably should try and uh, get in in this episode, um, especially seen as it's sort of been the last three weeks uh, a fairly major story in, in international news, and that's North Korea and um, sort of the the space of missile tests that it carried out. Yeah, I mean, I'll play basically my comment on it, and also I'll play Rocket Man for its entire, you know, runtime. <laughs> um, I, 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 I really think that you know, it's secondary to other concerns. Um, North Korea, I don't think will ever voluntarily um, start anything. In in effect, I mean, they 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 don't really have the ability to. Um, they 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 have kind of demonstrated that they have the capacity um for some longer range missile shots uh over the past few weeks hmm. um but the north korea i mean I, kim jong-un isn't gonna you know voluntarily start a war where he'll get pummeled effectively um voluntarily Oh, absolutely. And I'd say that, you know, this is a continuation of a cycle we've seen for the past you know, decade and some change, right? You know, North Korea doesn't have sort of the, the spotlight of the defense community on it. They'll launch some missiles. They'll use that as sort of a, a segue into negotiations for further uh, international aid shipments. And then, you know, sort of rinse and repeat. I think the only thing that's really sort of changed in, in the calculus here is or a couple of things that have changed is number one you don't have a u.s president directly engaging over twitter over these sort of exchanges and number two you're looking at a different government in south korea you're looking at one that's not about to sort of take the launches look at them be like okay whatever speech goes on as normal we'll continue to talk about reconciliation but rather you have a south korean government that says okay you launched one missile into our ocean here are three of our own we're going to launch them right back at you and so I think where I don't see that leading towards escalation. I think technical's got the uh, the money on the ball right there. Um, but it is sort of interesting to note sort of the uh, the nuances of how the dialogue has changed between the North and the South for one and for two, how those actions have changed as well. Yeah, though it is also a different government in the South right now as well right now. Um so that that may have some to do with the uh, with the current situation, and and also as you said, it, it may have to do with um, uh, 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 the North Korean government having a need for international aid, and surprisingly, starting from a position of hostility may work for them. It certainly has in the past. Absolutely, yeah. And am I right in saying that the uh, the the seventh nuclear test that was expected to occur sort of around the time of the u.s midterm elections doesn't appear to have materialized not to my knowledge 
Because I know that's yeah, not that entirely was about, wasn't it? Um, again, North Korean nuclear abilities are um, at least on the civilian side of things, or or the the open source side of things, not as well understood sometimes. Um, you know, there's there's a general idea of, of where their nuclear producing facilities are located, you know, what the IAEA puts out, um, though there is a restriction on inspections and, and other assets um, to, to actually find these things out. Um, so a, a lot of what we know is, is based on educated guesses on what their capabilities are, on what they, you know, may potentially test. Um, but we, we, we actually haven't seen a test in a fairly, uh, long time now. Mm. Um, so that, that is something to, to remember. Yeah. And obviously North Korea's sort of public statement seemed to have dialed down a little bit recently as well. Um, a far cry from, as you say, un under the Trump administration where, we, we regularly heard sort of fire and fury type uh, comments being uh, issued by both Kim Jong-un and, and his sister. Yes, absolutely. Though it does seem like Kim Jong-un's sister at least had been taking the reins on international sort of positioning. Um, though no one is really sure at this point, again, how that kind of shakes out internally. Yeah, the internal info streams are extremely, you know, few and far between. And I, I, I you know, recall about a year ago when there was all the talk about, you know, when's the last time we've seen Kim Jong-un appear publicly? And there was all this talk about, you know, um, his sister taking the reins, you know, fully potentially. And I think most of that chatter has died down and she's very much sort of found um, a place maybe coordinating foreign policy. But at the same time, who knows? You know, the, the information we get on the the internal palace uh, politics of North Korea are, you know, primarily coming from either defectors or what, you know, intelligence agencies choose to release. And so that's a, it's a very incomplete info stream. Yeah. And a lot of it is commentary based, which is kind of what we're doing now. Um, you know, there's, there's that interpretation um, and, and, and sort of seeing what there is at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I think it's fair to say that unlike North Korea, we, we definitely have a far better sort of understanding of internal affairs in the United States, um, where obviously over the last week we've seen sort of the midterm elections and um, I'm sat here as, as the only Brit on tonight and I will be completely honest, I still don't fully understand the entire US election system um, I don't think I ever will, if I'm honest, but uh, in, in light of that, I will hand over to the two experts um, to sort of discuss, really, obviously what's happened, um, the lack of a Republican red wave, um, and what that potentially means for the next two years for the, for the US. Oh, absolutely. Uh, do you want to start us off, Technical? Uh, I think I'll let you take the lead on this one. <laughs> Uh, by all means. Okay. So, yeah, the the narrative going into these elections was, you know, that of the red wave and even sort of more uh 
uh, left-leaning liberal sources within the U.S. were predicting that this was going to happen. I mean, this is a, a pretty well-established trend in American politics that whenever a first-term president enters the midterms, typically they see sort of um, blowback from the other uh, party. The opposition tends to take some seats. Sometimes they take both chambers of um, Congress. Sometimes they take one, so on and so forth. There are some, you know, some exceptions to this rule based upon, you know, uh, overarching uh, events having like sort of terminal impact on these elections. I think a really good example would be 9-11, uh, looking at sort of the 2002 midterms, I believe. Um, but what we've seen so far with these elections is a, you know, a very much a failure for that red wave to materialize. I think, you know, the predictions going into this was that the Republicans were going to take the House, not even getting into some of these nail biter races within the first day, maybe the first two days. The first 48 hours, most sources were saying, yeah, the Republicans will have the House. And right now, we're looking at a House that's still likely to be uh, Republican-dominated um, or um, uh, have a Republican majority. But at the same time, we're seeing many races that were thought to be safe becoming far closer than they were. And as a result, you know, the, the Democrats still do have a pathway to holding on to the House. You know, likewise, moving over, you know, to the Senate, there's a ton of close races going into this in sort of in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, um, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona. Um, there were some races that from the get-go, I think the, the pollsters got right as being close, even if they uh, some of them didn't get the end result correct. I think I described to some of my coworkers that Nevada was a coin toss, and I flipped a coin and it landed on heads, and so we went with the Republican there. But as we've seen, the uh, they have called the race and the Democrats ahead by 0.7 of a percent. So, I mean, if that isn't close, I don't know what is. Um, but I think my overarching takeaway from this has been we've seen Democrats that have uh, a larger sort of appeal to both uh, the suburbs as well as rural counties perform better than more establishment Democrats have uh, that have focused on cities almost alone in past elections. And I think that a great example of that is in Pennsylvania, where you have um, John Fetterman outperforming. President Biden in a, in a presidential election year in a ton of rural counties across the state. And I think that sort of that adoption of this strategy has has borne a ton of fruit for Democrats looking to hold on to control of the Senate. Absolutely. That that is uh, 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 something that I think we'll see in the future. I think you I think you summed up things as, as best as we can kind of summarize them to an international audience entirely fair and what does it mean in terms of u.s foreign policy and uh particularly sort of the u.s defense sphere for the next two years at the very least so that was actually a bit of a worry of mine going into this with sort of the the idea of the red wave of what would a you know a fully republican congress look like because over the past i'd say eight years we've seen you know well i mean over the past two decades we've seen polarization get worse in the u.s in the past eight years we've seen efforts from an opposition party to sort of sabotage the foreign policy of a uh, an incumbent president um i i think a really good example of that would be sort of the various treaties that were put in place in afghanistan before the trump administration left and really gave you know the biden administration uh, a bad hack at it. I, I don't think there were many good options in Afghanistan. And I think, you know, that's an entire different conversation for another day. Um, 
but I think that's that's an example of what was sort of feared with, you know, various talks of, you know, cutting uh, aid for Ukraine or sort of things that were sort of thinly veiled as sort of auditory, auditory, sorry, in nature. Um, I think the worry was that there if there was a Republican Congress and if they felt they could get more votes off of that in the 2024 election, they would sort of sabotage President Biden's foreign policy objectives for that win domestically. Um, I feel like that's less of a worry now. I think uh, when we're, I mean, we're looking at a, a Dem majority Senate for one, which will probably support the the president's plans foreign policy wise. And I think there are plenty of members of the House of Representatives, as well as in the Senate too, from both parties that have been very consistent on their support of Ukraine. Some some notable examples from the opposition in the Senate is going to be Marco Rubio. Uh, in the House, there's uh, a litany of various congressmen and women who have been, you know, steadfast on their support for Ukraine and everything like that. I, I think that fear was kind of showcased within the the government itself with sort of the proposition of a fifty billion dollar aid package before this new um, Congress would uh, take power in the coming January. Um, but at the same time, I think those fears have mostly been assuaged. And I think we'll continue to see sort of regular aid packages going towards Ukraine, just not necessarily in the sort of do or die 50 billion right now amount. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the aid package that was already, you know, the, the bipartisan aid package that was already passed has sort of established a. a a, a pattern for uh, for for aid to Ukraine um, and, and what may potentially, you know, uh, uh, come in the future. Absolutely. And we have seen sort of some isolationist sentiments from both parties in this case, um, whether it's sort of the, the America first group on the right or, you know, the progressive letter that was sent to the president um, from the left. That is there. But I think the amount of impact that they actually have has been very much sort of overhyped. And I mean, that's understandable, right? Fear tends to drive numbers. Um, but we've seen that same sort of progressive caucus walk back that letter to the president and say, you know, mostly um, by part of efforts of uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin being like, well, you know what? We should be supporting Ukraine. We should be supporting sort of democratic values abroad. And I think it's definitely a major bonus of, you know, Ukraine's successes on the field that sort of prevent um, isolationist sentiments from growing. In general, we've seen very bipartisan support for aid to Ukraine. And I think it's fair to say we've seen uh, very sort of widespread support in the UK Parliament as well for support of Ukraine. Um, obviously, as, as you guys will both be aware, no doubt, um, the UK's had a tumultuous last few months um, we've, I think we're now on our third Prime Minister in four or five months. Um, we've obviously lost Her Majesty the Queen, we've now got King Charles, um, and sometime later this week we are due the autumn budget, um, where unfortunately we are expecting probably even more defence cuts um, that we arguably can't afford in light of uh, events in Ukraine. Um, but I, I don't know how uh, how much of that's been reported in the states and, uh, and what your views are as uh, obviously Britain regards the US as its closest ally. 
I think the interpretation from the U.S. side right now is more based on Britain attempting to reconcile its fiscal shortfalls um, on on the governmental side of things. Um, I I I think there's less concern about sort of domestic military buildup versus um, uh, actual support for Ukraine. Um, I, I, again, Russia has been traditionally one of the main threats to Europe. Um, and at, at this point, they've kind of established that they're um, fairly occupied um, with with things they're currently dealing with um, in, in Ukraine. I, I don't think many people believe that uh, Russia has the capabilities to um, impact European security in any significant manner. Um so I, I, I think right now at least there's the perception that your that Ukrainian aid is viewed as more important than domestic military spending. Um, though at least in the UK right now there's there's a greater concern on 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 curbing inflation and, and balancing budgetary items. Yeah, I would certainly agree on that. I think in I've done a bit of monitoring um, for work on the UK in the past couple of months and um, I mean, a brief joke is that if you guys keep cycling through prime ministers, you may want to just release a calendar with the prime minister <laughs> of the month um, that might drum up some money for the defense sector. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, I think the the largest issue the UK has been facing over the past couple of months has been the cost of living crisis. And I think that compounded with, you know, rising energy rates was my biggest fear at sort of something that could deter uh, continued aid towards Ukraine. That being said, um, uh, beyond some, you know, economic decisions that I, I disagree with, I think that, you know, the recent, I believe it was a subsidies package that was announced in regards for uh, helping curb um, energy spending on a household basis. I think that's actually very astute policy. And I think that's necessary in order to sort of curb domestic unrest while continuing to be able to support Ukraine. And I'd agree with technical on top of that and saying that I think, you know, the largest threat to Europe is still Russia. And I, I think from a defense perspective, the UK can afford in the immediate to have maybe some of its domestic forces waning as long as it's still able to uh, continue its supply of arms, equipment and logistics to the Ukrainian armed forces. I think as long as the Russians are, are tied up in Ukraine or face a defeat in Ukraine, you know, God willing, um, then those domestic shortcomings are given sort of the, the flexibility and the time and space to be resolved in the, in the medium to long term. Yeah. And I, I think there's a, there, there's a general focus on, on maybe reorienting, um, from, from the current considerations. Yeah, and as you as you quite rightly say, Russia is obviously still the the biggest threat to Europe, and that's been very very clear since well, well before February. I think it's fair to say. Um, obviously, now as we head into sort of winter in Europe and 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 so on, um, there's going to be a great deal of uh, sort of stalemate. I would imagine uh, in in Russia and Ukraine, um, and I think that probably brings us nicely on to that topic of, uh, of developments in, in the Ukraine and Russia conflict. Um, we've obviously had the, the major bit of news this week that um, Russian forces are now in retreat 
um, from the only uh, major Ukrainian city that they ever managed to capture in the first place. Um, and it, it's not looking good for uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, well, I mean, uh, there there's a lot of things to be said about Putin, but I, I still do not believe he is directly under threat at this point. Um, he, he kind of has his own internal protection that he's built over the past, like, 15 years now that makes it kind of hard to remove him. Um, I think that as long as Russia is able to retain some territory in Ukraine, it's not viewed as a complete loss, though. Obviously, losing the city of Kherson and, you know, the surrounding areas and, and all territory west of the Dnieper um, and, and territory in Kharkiv Oblast as well. Um, is very damaging to the Russian perception of their, quote, special military operation that's devolved into a, a, a full-blown war with conscription and, and, and domestic losses in Russia. Um, though I think one of the, the understated uh, discussions at this point is how much the Russian gas um, export uh, uh, restrictions have backfired um, on 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 actually creating a bad environment in Europe. If we look at gas storage, um, it's, it's, it's got to a point where um, uh, Europe, or, or I, 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 I defer to Oliver uh, Alexander for, for his wonderful um, uh, tracking map of, of gas storage, but Germany has actually um, nearly uh, filled up their available uh, uh, gas storage facilities. I, I think they're sitting at like 99.67% capacity. Um, and this is this is going into the end of November at the or middle end of November at this point. Um, so we've we've basically had these events where European countries have ramped down heavy industrial production, um, saving gas, uh, while also uh, taking steps to buy from alternate sources. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, having an abnormally warm winter or, or late fall um, has also contributed to saving a lot of that potential gas usage that we would have seen already. Um, so at this point, we're, we're starting to see most European countries, even on maximum worst case scenarios through the, through the winter, being able to hold a fairly sizable gas reserve and um, uh, not have to resort to rationing or any significant uh, cuts in, in energy production, which for Russia is kind of a disaster because that's been their, their main propaganda move is, you know, Europe's going to freeze without us. Everything's, you know, going to wither there and, and, and they're all going to, you know, be terrible and it's going to be awful. And, you know, look at us with all of our gas and our we can basically waste it. We have so much and it's so cheap. Um, so that's that's definitely gonna gonna impact a lot of uh, domestic Russian sentiment on how much they can affect Europe. And, and it's been interesting watching, like, sort of as time has gone on, how uh, Russian information efforts have changed. Sort of like even coming to somewhat acknowledge that. I, I think we all remember, you know, four months ago when you would have Russian propagandists living within the EU, taking videos of themselves, you know, leaving their stove running and being like, "Oh, enjoy it while you can," everything like that. And I don't think the fear of Europe not being able to adapt quick enough was uh, unfounded, especially looking at previous sort of um, shocks to the EU in particular and how they've dealt with that. Um, but I would very much agree with technical here. We've seen gas storage beat uh, metrics and goals um, by a period of months in some cases. 
Uh, I think this winter is going to be pretty medial for the Europeans. I think storage efforts have gone very well. I think that, you know, productive infrastructure investments, whether it's the Italian Adriatic pipeline or the Norwegian Polish Baltic pipeline being built are, are definitely going to help mitigate those potential pains. Um, my worry is that, you know, looking down the road, if we're if we're talking about this a year from now, is that, you know, a lot of money has been put into infrastructure and a lot of money has been put into emergency buying primarily from Gulf partners or Algeria, Morocco, places like that. Uh, my issue would be, you know, if we're talking about the same issue 12 months from now, will they be able to repeat this uh, seemingly sort of miracle that they put together in regards to stocking up these um, storage facilities so quickly? And then my additional worry looking forward, and this is a bit more on the, um, I'd say less potential for happening, but still something that should be acknowledged. You know, we, in the wake of the Nord Stream pipelines being sabotaged, do we think uh, Russia in a, in a bout of sort of desperation would seek to sort of sabotage why, uh, either kinetically or um, via cyber capabilities, some of these storage facilities or some of these terminals to sort of attempt to um, raise the pressure on the various European nations? Yeah, ab absolutely. And I, I, I think that it definitely has impacted the the general Russian populace's ability to um, uh, uh, view this as a win, no matter what's happening on the ground. In that, you know, they're making Europe suffer, and they're they're they are making this objectively better move um, be because Europe is being you know curtailed in what they're able to do. Um, and I think as we move deeper and deeper into winter, as Europe doesn't face these cuts and there's there's more of this publicity on the fact that that Europe is able to meet its gas obligations um, or its usage obligations. Uh, we'll we'll definitely see the Russian populace get a bit more concerned um, with how good their move was or or, or how prescient their move was. Um, so I think we'll see that that definitely come into play. But but again, I I I do think Europe will have to take longer term steps, and they it looks like they are. Um, in, in order to source their their natural gas from other sources, um, uh, uh, you know, be, uh, whether that be the U.S., the Middle East, um, the Caucasus, or or, or other locations, um, uh, exploring potentially uh, new sources, maybe you know, in in Africa, um, but but importing that is definitely going to be a question. And Austin, you, you mentioned that, that there's obviously been a shift in the way that the Russian propaganda machine has sort of been working. Um, and I think uh, there was a, a tweet that popped up a few days ago which, which made me chuckle and I think which shows quite distinctly how far it's changed um, in that a Russian newspaper um, reportedly had an article uh, titled Successes at the Front Lines Allow Moving the Front Line Back. And I, I think that pretty much sums up that even the Russian press are still desperately trying to cling on to some hope that the conflict, or or, or should we call it the, the special military operation, is um, still going the way it was uh, it was planned. Um, I'm I'm a massive fan of the uh, the, the spoof account uh, Darth Putin. Um, and the regular, you know, sort of day 259 of my three-day war. Um, 
my my army works in reverse and my generals are falling out of hospital buildings and and, and things like that um i remain a master of strategy exactly strategic yeah. that's what he always says um, um i i would say that so for sure the narrative is changing and it reminds me of a class i took back in university about the the eastern front during the second world war and if you look at sort of german sources post uh stalingrad when they're you know they're falling back or even at you know post operation Bagration, you see all of these mentions of well it was a masterful retreat you see you know it was it was well organized and we exerted you know uh, inflicted more casualties than we took eventually they'll they'll run out of steam right and i i think we're seeing a bit of a, a parallel going on in the way that sort of russian media is describing you know particularly the um retreat from Kherson. um and we we kind of saw little inklings of it with uh kharkiv as well um but, you know, there was uh, a line I'm remembering from Time magazine in, in the 40s that essentially said, you know, you can retreat masterfully all you want, but eventually you have to go back on the offensive. And w what we've seen from the Russians so far is a lack of that capability almost altogether. Yeah. And, and again, as, as we've seen in, in Kherson, I mean, the, the Ukrainians are now capturing Russian T-62s that have never been modernized, that... Uh, have effectively been untouched since the 1960s. Um, so I, I do think the Russians are beginning to run out of this material as as well as trained personnel, um, which is going to significantly affect them going into the future. The Ukrainians have obviously demonstrated um, the willingness to use new equipment and, and also the, the equipment that's been supplied to them has given them these capabilities too, especially in the South. Um, uh, develop new new techniques for mechanized warfare, um, sort of exploit Russian openings when they're available. Um, and and I, I think they're definitely going to continue to do that. Um, they, they definitely have better morale right now, um, arguably better training than the Russian forces in the field, um, and, and, and have a, a different structure of equipment. Um, but it is quickly becoming more effective than what the Russians have available to them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, even before the conflict, we there was a general understanding that despite all, you know, the brash, that the Russian military industrial complex and its current configuration can't produce modern equipment at scale. I remember there was a ton of, you know, sources talking about how they were finding in T-90s, you know, subsystems that were produced by Talis in France. Um, even before the war, you know, these subsystems were being outsourced to other countries that generally, you know, for as much as talked about about Europe relying on Russian gas, well, Russia relied on European subsystems for their modern equipment. And, you know, as much uh, as many, uh, you know, all 10 of the T-14s that got paraded by Red Square or as many times as we've seen photos of SU-57s, when you actually look at, you know, the production lines of those, um, those uh, forms of equipment, they're very, very low, and we've seen uh, a complete incapability of the Russians to produce more of them in any sort of meaningful amount, which is why we're seeing, you know, these T-62s that haven't been touched, why, you know, some of the, uh, the more radicals on sort of like the logistical destruction of the Russian military are talking about, you know, at what point do we see a T-34 peek its head out of, you know, the swamps? Um, and I don't foresee that issue changing. I think we've seen 
terminal logistical failures from Russian forces throughout the course of this war. We haven't seen those issues getting better, and we've seen those issues extrapolate not just onto tanks or to planes, but onto small arms that weren't stored properly from Soviet stockpiles, onto, you know, seaburn equipment that isn't properly sealed. And, and so a, a big question for me looking forward is, you know, there's all this talk of, you know, winter's going to come and we're going to see the war sort of hit a standstill because it's harder to operate in winter than it is in summer or spring or whatever. Um, my question is going to be, we've seen shortcomings on armored vehicles. We've seen shortcomings on small arms. We've seen shortcomings on protective equipment. Does that also apply to winter equipment? Is there going to be an issue with Russian troops keeping themselves warm? And if that is the case, we're going to see even lower morale issues than we've seen already. And we may see an opportunity for the Ukrainians to take advantage of that. Indeed. And, and yeah. And, and the, again, I, I, Oh, go ahead, John. You, you mentioned the, uh, the T-34 and, and how long before we see them entering battle. And I, I, I don't know if I'm remembering incorrectly or, or if I saw a meme or something, but I'm, I'm sure I have seen a, a photo of a T-34 with, uh, with the Russian Z markings on it driving around somewhere uh in a video recently um i believe that was at a parade <laughs> but um it, it, I, it, I, yeah the, it, you make the point quite well um the russians are very much struggling with their equipment um as 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 we you know as we mentioned that the darth putin account is very quick to uh point out that uh the the, the cruiser moskva has joined the submarine service among other things um <laughs> And yeah, it, it it can only really get worse as winter goes on, as as you say. Yeah, and and I I do think there are definitely questions of what things will look like in the winter. You know, who it will affect more. The Ukrainians are obviously better equipped right now, um, uh, and 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 may have greater capabilities to handle potential, um, winter fighting. Um, so, so I think we'll we'll see. Uh, obviously, uh, the offensive in 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 Kherson, um, uh, uh, capturing the city and uh, retaking that area wasn't exactly a, a, an opposed offensive, um, as much as the Russians were able to retreat, um, where their rear guard elements took uh, uh, some casualties. But but in total, they were they were able to move most of their forces out across the river. Um, I, I, I think we'll see where the Ukrainians go next and where the Ukrainians move next. They they have all the intentions to regain territory that the Russians have taken since February, and they've, they've been doing that fairly actively um, since the start of the fall. Um, so I, I, I think we'll sort of see where that goes over, over the next month. Oh, there is another thing I want to touch on that we we touched on a bit previously, and that was sort of Putin building the security apparatus around him over the last 15 years. Um, and I would agree with uh, technical there. Um, to keep it brief in sort of what we've seen, especially in the lead up to this conflict, whether it's the gutting of the FSB or, you know, firing generals that have um, talked up to Putin or talked down to Putin, so to speak. Um I think the security apparatus around him is still quite secure. However, I could see that calculus shifting should we see even larger sort of Ukrainian um, victories occur down the road. 
Yeah, and and we'll we'll see how that affects domestic Russian politics. Though though I I do have personal belief that Putin is infallible, um, <laughs> to the end. Though I, I again we'll we'll see what happens there. Was there anything else you guys wanted to talk about, or? Um, I don't know, Twitter's imminent collapse, though I, I think we already touched on that, and, and yeah. I know we're all running around with our hair on fire because we primarily use Twitter, um, so obviously we have a vested interest in the platform surviving, um, though though I, I, I definitely think there are, there are greater things we all consider Twitter um, um, being able to provide, obviously, a lot of the war crimes investigation that have been done or war crimes investigations plural very much plural in ukraine um that have been done have have really relied on a lot of uh, content being issued through twitter um which has allowed sort of eyeballs to be put on the content um and and more content to be produced um and and vice versa um so that that'll that'll definitely be a loss um if if we lose twitter um, I, I, I really think that that is a, a massive negative to the public good. Um, and, and, and other places too, again, the, the Rohingya genocide, um, uh, other, other groups that have been profoundly, um, affected, uh, there, there have been deep investigations conducted, you know, through these platforms. Um, and, and I, I, I really do think that the Twitter, at least before its acquisition, um, was kind of this fairly good platform on the moderation side of things, um, uh, 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 both uh, both on the moderation side and the public policy side. Um, one of one of Twitter's greatest assets was that it was always pushing for um, uh, uh, free speech rights of its users, the rights to an an sorry can't speak today um, anonymity for its users. Um, uh, I I know Twitter was very frequently submitting Supreme Court amicus briefs and 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 uh, uh, even being co co plaintiffs on on a couple of cases that had to do with um, right to privacy. Um, so I, I I think that definitely is uh, uh, something that is a loss. Obviously, the the Twitter departments that were responsible for for those um, uh, 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 areas have. Are, are no longer with the company um so that that definitely is a loss uh i think for everyone in general i would agree um i would say that you know despite its faults and i think twitter always was an imperfect system um i i have a hard time thinking of another platform that so easily allowed somebody in a uh, in a crisis area to sort of broadcast what they were seeing you know whether we're talking about the arab spring whether we're talking about uh, narco terror violence in in Mexico. Whether we're talking about um, you know, the Syrian civil war, I mean, you know, time and time again. And nowadays, with Ukraine, with with Myanmar, with Sri Lanka, with um, with Iran, you know, uh, we are still seeing that you know, despite for despite all the memes and despite all of the the nonsense that normally occurs on Twitter, at the same time, there is that avenue that has been used to do good. Um, and that's definitely a worry on my end as well. If we see sort of Twitter continue to head in the, uh, spiral that it's doing currently. And so my worry of the platform right now is that, 
you know, we're seeing ad ad uh, buyers pull out. We're seeing less revenue for a company that was bought at um, an overvalued evaluation. And we're, we're seeing many of the folks that helped build these systems that have worked very well uh, leave the company. And so my question is, you know, you're seeing um, internal collapse. You're seeing external revenue sources collapse. How do you sort of salvage this? And, you know, Elon's plan was to do the subscription service. And the initial numbers on that seem to be very, very poor. Um, and also, as we've seen, you know, when we talk about uh, disinformation efforts and everything, I think it's important to include, you know, the comedic ones alongside the the truly damaging ones. And sometimes those go hand in hand. I'm sure both of you saw the uh, the quote unquote pharmaceutical company claiming that insulin was free and that having a, a, a very big effect on that company's market cap. Well, um, there, are, there are defense implications, too. We also saw a fake tweet from Lockheed Martin um, that that affect that that appeared to affect their market cap as well. Um, so, so I, I, I do genuinely do think there are national security implications around this as well, um, that are, that are very pertinent to what's going on at, at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, it's only a matter of time before we have a quote unquote verified world leader, you know, declaring war on Twitter and there being actual sort of, uh, um, defense movements, military movements being conducted as a result of that fake tweet. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think their Twitter builds a platform on trust and 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 eroding a lot of that is um, or, or not necessarily trust, but the implicit understanding that someone with a blue check was who they were claiming to be yeah. um, because of a variety of, of systems that, that Twitter had placed sort of behind uh, 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 their door, but were also fairly transparent about Um so so there there was this assumption that, you know, if, if someone had a blue check and they were claiming to be a world leader, well, you know, it was probably the world leader, or at least our communications team with access to the account. Um, and and I, I definitely do think there are questions now about, you know, the the eight dollar disinformation campaign. Um, and and again, we've, we've already seen tangible effects in the 24 hours that the new system was up. Um so many uh, companies at least were were hit by this this disinformation um and 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 it again has taught caused those tangible effects and, and it gives me pause sort of to think about you know the whole reason that the eight dollar campaign was rolled out uh, in addition to being a new revenue stream was this uh, all this talk about like well it's it's against bots right like a, a bot account's not going to pay eight dollars which you know <laughs> Anyone with any experience in disinformation efforts knows that whether this is state sponsored or uh, from a non-state actor, they Eight typically bucks throw. Is cheap. It's very cheap. It's like these are these are million dollar operations, if not you know tens of millions of dollars. So you know, t changing the the cost from being like, oh, you, this thirty thousand dollars is going to go recruit this guy to go build up a platform or whatever, as opposed to just being like, oh, we can have a botnet for eight bucks per. All right, send it. Yeah, and there there definitely is that that huge questions of the the overall implications of that. Again, it, it's effectively torn down what was once a trustworthy platform into just this. I. I kind of chaotic marketplace um which due to the nature of who's on twitter if you look at who's on twitter it's journalists it is government leaders it is government employees it is you know uh, uh, generally just this environment of 
of people who have some decision-making capacity for a lot of individuals. Um, it's companies, it's, you know, people who cover sports, it's, you know, the athletes themselves use Twitter as an outlet for um, putting out news releases. Twitter is viewed as this platform to sort of exchange news and breaking information. Um, and and in, Twitter implicitly built up this trust um, where it was this reliable platform to do so. Um you know, the DOD, holy cow, every single DOD department has, you know, a, a, a Twitter account and puts out news through that. And, and mm -hmm. you know, is, that's its main outlet for putting out news. Um, and, and, you know, there are very large implications greater than Twitter um, when when there are shenanigans going on on Twitter. Absolutely. And it, I think ultimately, that you know, there is going to come a point potentially if, if things continue the way they're heading, where you might well find that some of us within the OSINT community are being uh, sort of mimicked or, or have have very supposedly verified uh, bots created of us. Um, and I, I think if that starts happening, it uh, it might well be time for us to move elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do also think there is a um, a, a concern right now with the, the advertised deboosting of non-paid verified accounts um, where it would affect um, a, a lot of individuals in the OSIN community who, who don't currently have the opportunity um, to, to pay to boost their accounts. Um, and I, I personally, I, I have seen that the Twitter search has gone downhill in the past couple of weeks. Um, where I'm not able to as easily find uh, content um, uh, uh, from the OSINT sphere, which has, has again, caused super big issues um, uh, for some of the work that I've tried to do. Um, and and it, it is incredibly frustrating to see stuff like this happen. Oh, that's entirely fair. And I think, you know, we've already, of course, you know, these disinformation efforts are going to target you know, the big corporations and governments first and foremost. But when we talk, when we have this conversation about building trust, I think the OSINT community has built a, uh, a ton of trust over the past, you know, couple of years, let alone since the beginning of the, uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war. Um, and to see that sort of potentially subverted so quickly is definitely a kick in the pants, so to speak. Absolutely. And I think it'll continue to be an issue. Um, moving into the future how how long that future is is definitely in question at this point yeah i'm far more confident about uh european energy stockpiles than i am about the future of twitter in the near term <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would i would agree with that and with that i think we will call it a day there um ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening um, thank you, Austin, for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. And uh, we will be back, hopefully, in about two weeks' time, uh, returning to our sort of usual schedule um, with another episode of the Ocean Bunker podcast. So thank you very much for listening, and good night. <laughs>